Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Oh, let's take a deep breath. (laughs) And uh, unfortunately, we are going to have to turn back to COVID again. I would really like to never have to talk about COVID-19 ever again. I am definitely done with this. Um, yeah. (sighs) It's, it's really hard when your actual, like, deep seated fear comes true. I've always had a real fear of infectious diseases, uh, which I've mentioned over the years, um, occasionally, uh, it used to be, I was terrified of getting multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. Um, but now there's the literal pandemic. Ah! Um, (laughs) yeah, I'm having, having a good time. I'm sure you are too, even if you don't have an actual phobia of, uh, infectious diseases, no one is enjoying this. Um, So we're going to start tonight with the discussion of the uh, Omicron variant. And so the first thing to note, and the most important thing to note, is that we don't know all that much about the variant at this point. But what we do know is very important. We know how to drastically reduce the chances of becoming infected. And so... Standard spiel here. If you're indoors in a public place, you should be wearing a mask. A cloth mask is okay, but surgical or especially a N95 or KN95 mask is better. Try to make sure that your indoor spaces are well ventilated. Um, in the studio tonight, we have the window open, despite the fact that that means that I have to be wearing a hoodie. <laughs> maintain social distance whenever possible, get a booster shot. This is now legitimate, 100%. Um, I think that it's just a good idea now with a new variant coming uh, onto the scene to get a booster shot. Um, I got mine without any issues. And the sooner you do it, the better probably, because uh, I think people are probably going to be getting more interested in doing it. So those appointments are going to start to fill up. I went to uh, insert uh, large pharmacy chain here, and I was in and out in literally five minutes. And the other thing you can do is Lobby your representatives to push for better distribution of the vaccine to the global south and to force pharmaceutical companies to forgo patent rights. I could spend the entire night talking about those two two things, but I will spare you that because this is not a politics uh, centered, at least. <laughs> radio show. So I will not spend uh, the whole night talking about patent rights and pharmaceutical companies and how uh, (laughs) the uh, commodification of healthcare is um, 
obviously one of the most disgusting parts of capitalism. And it's just going to make you and me both angry. So let's move on. <laughs> uh, but it's true that we are not going to be able to get back to any kind of normality, any kind of just not having to be constantly vigilant until the majority of the world has been vaccinated. Because the reason that we get variants is because they circulate in people who are not, uh, that don't have good immune responses. And they can also spread to people who are immunocompromised. And so um, some of the variants have come from people who were immunocompromised having been infected, and then it was able to mutate and then spread from there. And so it's incredibly, incredibly important for us to keep moving towards getting people vaccinated. And that's not just in the global South. I mean, obviously, America is still at a dismal rate for uptake of um, the uh, vaccine. And I think that I just really wish some people would come out, some prominent people on the right would come out and really say, and I don't mean prominent people in the sense of Mitch McConnell or people like that. I mean, some of the people that these that the uh, more radical wing of the right wing, though that seems to be becoming everyone at this point, um, if they would actually just come out and say, look, get vaccinated. Um, I would love that. That would be super. You can still think all of the other terrible things you think about everyone and everything, um, but it would just be great if they would say, get vaccinated. Um, you know, if the Louis Gohmert and Lauren Boberts of the world, and, uh, I can't think of what her name is offhand, the blonde, um, <laughs> I'm sorry to, to call her that Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's it. If they would just come out and say, get vaccinated and, you know, host a vaccine, um, host vaccine clinics. Just the idea that this has become politicized is so upsetting to me. I mean, obviously, as someone who is on the opposite side, I think that it's political because of the issues with patents and the um, outrageous amounts being charged for things that were created using government funds. But I'm willing to, you know, let that go because I think that people should be vaccinated. And if that means that, you know, pharmaceutical companies are going to get rich because of it, then fine. Um, because it's about saving people's lives. And, um, yeah, I, I just don't know how to make that better. But anyways, I'm sorry. I am, I am going off into, uh, fantasy land here thinking anything like that might happen. Let's get back to the actual science. <laughs> and so we know that Omicron has been found in several countries. 
uh, and is now in America, actually, and we'll talk about that later on. Um, and so we know that it's in South Africa and Botswana, but we also don't necessarily know if it originated there because Dutch authorities, for instance, just traced back a case that was has an infection date of 12 days ago, which is before it was identified in South Africa. And so there needs to be a systematic look at whether this is the beginning of a wave or if it's just a variant that has popped up but will quickly get outcompeted by Delta, which continues to be the most prominent variant. However, we do think it's probably the beginning. It appears to have been caught at the beginning of an upswing, at a time where everybody has been focused on Delta, says John Connor, a microbiologist at Boston University and investigator at its National Emerging Infectious Disease Laboratories. The nice part about having that information early is that the rest of the world can start examining all the questions that are raised by a new variant. Do our diagnostics still work? Does it look like an immune response generated by vaccines can still neutralize the virus? Unfortunately for the average person, we need to simply wait and see what comes of detailed analyses of different aspects of the variant. So for instance, the genetic structure has already started being um, ana analyzed by scientists in South Africa. And we will also need to look at what populations are being infected and if they share any particular traits. One can then infer from the genetics as to how this virus may escape antibody neutralization, whether it will escape vaccines or not, says Dinan Pillay, a virologist at University College London. Though he notes that this analysis can only give possible outcomes, not concrete answers. One can never know, but one can make a calculated assessment based on what we know about the genetics of other variants. The next thing that will need to be done is to take these spike proteins from the new variant and attach them to a neutral virus and see how sera, which is the part of blood that contains immune cells, reacts to the new variant. The worry is that Omicron has a lot of changes and thus might not be recognized by our current immune responses, built up by either having been infected previously or having received the vaccine. What's especially interesting about Omicron is that there are so many changes relative to what we've seen in the wild type and Delta, the primary variants we've had so far notes Matthew Ferrari, director of the Center for Infectious Disease Dynamics at Penn State University. It's so many differences that we now have to worry about how those differences interact with each other. And so once that work is done, then researchers will switch to actually challenging Sarah with live virus. That's taking the real virus, Ferrari says, we can do them relatively quickly, but they have to be done in specialized settings, biosafety level three. So obviously this includes specialized safety measures for dealing with respiratory pathogens, including airlocks, respirators, you know, special um, suits for everyone to wear. You've probably seen contact, not sorry, not contact, um, <laughs> Outbreak. I think that's what it's called. Outbreak? 
It had, uh, you know, it's the one with the monkeys that I, that I haven't seen the whole of because again, my actual <laughs> fear, greatest fear is of infectious diseases. So I haven't actually seen it. I think Dennis Hoff, Hoffman was in it. Um, but don't quote me on that either. Um, so yeah, but you've all seen people in, you know, the big, uh, biohazard suits at some point in some, uh, piece of media. And so, yeah, it's, it's, we're gonna, we're gonna figure it out. A. Marm Kilpatrick, an infectious disease researcher at UC Santa Cruz, suggests that these tests should come within a week or two. But of course, this is all studies that are going to be in vitro, not in vivo, which means that how the antibodies react in a Petri dish isn't the same as how they may react in a person's body. What we see in a lab is much simpler than what happens in real life. Our real immune systems are obviously much more complex, says Emma Hodcroft, an, an evolutionary geneticist at the University of Bern in Switzerland. And so that means that we cannot perfectly predict, just from looking at the sequences, how much immune evasion this variant might have or how much more transmissible it is. We really need to wait for more data to see that. And so we also don't currently have have a lot of good data on how Omicron might affect patients differently, uh, whether it will cause a more mild or more severe disease state. Um, and so, again, South Africa is not to blame for the variant, most likely. I can't, there's no, there's no um, indication yet that they are the ones that that country is where it comes from. And even if it was, again, there are reasons why uh, variants might emerge in, say, Africa. <laughs> um, and so, honestly, it seems like they're kind of being punished for being transparent um, and having doctors who were really good at sequencing COVID and finding out that this was a new variant. Um, but you know, it may end up being the key to a quicker understanding of the prognosis for infected patients because of the unique circumstances in South Africa. One of the key things we need to do is really keep an eye on what's going on with the spread of the variant in other populations, particularly looking at how much infection there is in South Africa and what that means for hospitalizations, says Lawrence Young, a virologist at the University of Warwick Medical School. If we're going to see any results around the ability of Omicron to cause more severe disease or otherwise, it will be in South Africa. And so there's actually a couple of reasons for this. Um, South Africa has a young population. So um, if it is more uh, prevalent in younger populations, that will tell us something important. Um, if it, um, and also, the reason why um, it's a area of concern is that in sub-Saharan Africa and in South Africa, there are a lot of people who unfortunately have AIDS and are not able to get treatment for it because, again, uh, pharmaceutical companies that have 
hold patents that they won't give up uh, for life-saving medicines. Um, but anyways, <laughs> it's just it's just something that makes me very angry, as you can probably tell. Um, even though I'm trying very hard to keep it as laughter rather than white hot anger. Um, and so people with already compromised immune systems, if it really takes off with those people, then we'll know again something very important about it. Um, hopefully it will not, um, because I don't want, um, anyone to have to be test cases for this. I wish that no one was going to get it. I wish that, uh, we wouldn't have anything else, um, happen, but of course that's not, that's not a scenario that looks at all likely. Um, there are cases popping up all over the place now. Um, but again, it will be a while until we have good data rather than simply, um, stories and, um, you know, preliminary results of any kind of, um, surveys. And so we'll need to wait and see if those infected were previously vaccinated or whether or not those who are vaccinated are protected from severe illness. Uh, right now, what we can do, first of all, is look at epidemiology rather than virology. And so, again, those tests in the lab are going to take a while. But if you see more cases with, for instance, Omicron versus Delta, that will tell us one of two things. If we see fast replacement, that's indicative of either fast transmission or it could be indicative of immune evasion, Ferrari says. The two things are confounded right now. If we see a replacement of Delta by Omicron, we won't necessarily know immediately if that's because of increased transmissibility or decreased immune protection. The speed at which we get laboratory data is going to depend on how quickly we get access to virus isolates, Angela Rasmussen, a coronavirologist at the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization International Vaccine Center in Saskatchewan, Canada, says. The travel bans have made it more challenging to get materials to and from Southern Africa, so they are actually actively hindering research efforts which is, of course, very, very unsurprising. And, you know, it may turn out that Omicron doesn't become a huge, um, you know, doesn't become bigger than Delta. It may be that if it does become bigger than Delta, it may be a uh, variant that has less severe symptoms. We just don't know yet. Um, but what we do know is that we're still dealing with a huge outbreak of the Delta variant. Parts of Europe are under lockdown. Some U.S. states are in, are in, frankly, states of emergency because their healthcare systems are so taxed. Um, you know, the president just said the other day that he's sending out, uh, you know, basically emergency preparedness, uh, teams to states that are already, uh, you know, hitting their limit with their healthcare systems. And so we are not out of the woods by any means. Um, so again, just to go over it again, get your booster, wear a mask. Don't let your unvaccinated relatives come to Christmas dinner. Zoom with them instead. 
If you are exposed to someone, quarantine for 14 days before going out and about again. If you don't have access to regular testing and you feel sick with the symptoms of COVID, either go to a pharmacy where you can get a test or order a home kit. Uh, one of the things that they are talking about is that they are going to start requiring um, insurance companies to cover home tests. So that will be very good. What you should not do, especially even if you're being regularly tested, even if you've gotten a booster, even if you're wearing a mask, please, please do not go to a large gathering of people with questionable vaccine status in a building that is too small for the amount of people in it to do any kind of safe social distancing. So <laughs> that brings us to our second case from the U.S., which is from a Minnesota man who traveled to New York City to attend an anime convention at which there were an estimated 53,000 people. Now, apparently the convention did require face coverings and vaccinations. However, the organizers only required attendees to have one dose of vaccine and told them they could come directly after that first dose. And this is directly according to the Anime New York, New York City website, which reads, quote, quote, your proof of vaccination must show that you have received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine authorized by the FDA or, or WHO. You can attend immediately after your first dose. Now, of course, as we actually know, it takes at least a week for a vaccine to be fully protective, and that one dose only confers weak protection. And in fact, with the COVID-19s, we were told to wait two weeks between the um, doses and also two weeks after you have received a dose for you to feel to be able to say that you are fully back, uh, that you are fully immunized. And so we may see a rise in cases from that event, either of Delta or the Omicron variants. Um, it just happened um, at the end of November, so about a week and a half ago, two weeks, which is right at the edge of um, when people will start to get infected from having attended. Um, and yeah, oh, goodness. Um, it's just, it's very frustrating. And, you know, with that amount of people, how can you actually police face coverings? How can you actually, it just, ugh, the, the thought of it absolutely makes me sick to the stomach. Um, I would love to be able to get back to normal, but that is not where we are. And I think that it's, um, extremely unfortunate. And I think that it's extremely, um, it is extremely questionable of venues and conventions and those sorts of things to not be controlling the number of people that they actually allow to come and actually doing better about um, social distancing and vaccine requirements 
and all sorts of things like that. I understand the fact that, you know, people want to get back to normal people. There are people whose livelihoods rely on these sorts of events. But um, if we have large outbreaks of disease, then it's going to be a lot longer before we can go back to having these kinds of big events in a normal way. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, it's very, very, uh, frustrating. All right. So I want to quickly talk about one more thing having to do with, um, COVID-19. <laughs> um, and then we'll take a break and then we'll come back and we'll talk about some completely other, uh, things that are completely different from this. So I wanted to talk about this because I did previously talk about it. Uh, so this is uh, Monopiravir. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, but it's Merck's antiviral pill that was supposed to be uh, named after Molnir, uh, which is, of course, Thor's hammer because it's supposed to hammer COVID-19. Huh. No. Um, so initially Merck and its partner Ridgeback Biotherapeutics put out a press release because of course they did, touting a 50% cut to the risk of hospitalization and death in patients at severe risk, uh, at risk of severe disease. It turns out that this was a false positive from a small study and from contributions from in vitro studies, which as we've already mentioned tonight, don't always translate into comparable in vivo results. Despite the fact that the efficacy dropped to just 30% in subsequent studies, the drug was approved by the FDA's Antimicrobial Drugs Advisory Committee in a 13 to 10 vote that apparently took an entire day and was very, very contested. Now, this is largely a product of the need for any sort of effective treatments against the disease, which, as we've mentioned on several several times just tonight, continues to kill people across the country. In addition to a loss of efficacy with subsequent studies, the drugs also have potential mutagenic effects. And so basically, they uh, the people who, who voted for it, a lot of them were like, um, yeah, but we don't recommend it for women who are pregnant or thinking of becoming preg pregnant. Um, definitely not a good idea. Um, now the original 50% figure came from an interim analysis of 762 people who were followed around for a month after testing positive. 377 people were in the placebo group and Merck reported that 53 of these subjects were hospitalized with eight of them dying. Of the 386 people in the drug cohort, however, only 28 were hospitalized and none died. This meant that the rate of hospitalization and death for the placebo group was 14.1% compared to just 7.3% in the Molnupiravir group. However, a follow-up collected data from an additional 646 people, and in this cohort, the effect vanished. Among 322 people in the placebo group, 15 were hospitalized and one died, for a rate of around 4.7%. Uh, 
of 324 people who administered the drug, 20 were hospitalized and one died. That is a rate of 6.2%. Obviously, higher than the placebo. So, Merck combined the two studies to report 9.7% rates of hospitalization and death in the placebo group and 6.8% in the molnupiravir group. And so, this would mean a 3% decrease in absolute risk and a 30% decrease in relative risk. This efficacy was called, quote, not overwhelmingly good and modest at best by members of the FDA panel. And while there were no safety concerns found during the tests themselves, again, the FDA panel still worries about the unknown possibilities of mutagenic effects. Now, the drug works by acting as a decoy building block for the virus's genetic code. But the problem with that is that it also has the potential to disrupt the genetic code of the patient. And so, obviously, they're worried that not enough testing has been done. But again, since COVID is so present at the moment, many saw any possible intervention as a good thing. Some who voted yes, again, wish to limit the use to very high-risk, non-pregnant, unvaccinated people who had been briefed on the dangers of the drug. The drug will now go to the FDA proper for a decision on whether to grant emergency use authorization. However, they usually follow the advice of the relevant panel. Next, the FDA will be reviewing an antiviral pill from Pfizer, which they claim is 89% effective against hospitalizations and death and doesn't carry any risk of mutations. So we'll have to see if their claim holds up or are dashed like Merck's in the coming weeks. Okay, so definitely, definitely um, just keep going with doing the things that work. And again, try to appeal to those who you know aren't vaccinated and try and do it with compassion and personal stories rather than with anger or ridicule. I know how hard that can be, but the latter doesn't change minds. While the former actually has the potential to move people, potentially. Um, yeah. <sighs> All right. We are going to take a break. We're going to do some show promos and some PSAs. Then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about Mars. There is no COVID on Mars, and I'm very excited about that. All right. Uh, please do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Join hosts Jacqueline and Mari on Alternative Lately every Sunday from 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio, WXOJ, LP, Northampton. Every week, we bring you the latest in alternative pop rock music. We'll highlight underappreciated talent and undiscovered artists, bands, and collectives you didn't know you needed. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Alternative Lately. If you're looking for new current music, start here. 
never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. The Kids Show on WXOJ is a great show, Saturday mornings, 8 to 9. So please tune in and listen to it. I want my milk and I want it now. I want my milk and I want it now. My breast and well, I want my bottle both. And I want my milk and I want it now. And I want you to listen to the kids' I show. I want my bath and I want it now. So we'll see you next Saturday. I want my... Sundays from 4 to 6. Please join Adam on the air for Metal Education. Each week we'll delve into a different area of the genre, take requests, and generally cause mayhem, and enjoy our Sunday school. That's WXOJ FM Metal Education with Adam on the air every Sunday. See you there. Hello, everybody. I'm DJ Panic, host of OK Asia. I bring you a wide selection of Asian artists, combining genres like rock, pop, hip-hop, and R&B every Saturday at 12 a.m. with a repeat show on Mondays at 1 a.m. on Valley Free Radio. From the one-ups to the hit points, Kadesh Flow to Mega Ran. Press Start to Continue gives you two full hours of the best in video game remixes and nerdcore hip-hop. Join Morlock every Monday night at 9 on Valley Free Radio 103.3 FM and check out the show archives at starttocontinue.com. Press Start to Continue, bringing nerd music to the masses. Reggae Down is on Mondays from 6 to 8 p.m. Turn on your radio for great sounds from international reggae artists, roots, dancehall, DJ mixes, and rhythms. Get down with Reggae Down every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Did you get the vaccination? No, not that vaccination. The Soul Vaccination. That's what we deliver on the Soul Patrol every Tuesday from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Join me, Dave Keating, with classic funk, soul, R&B, along with a good dose of new disco, deep house, chill, and yeah, maybe a little yacht rock, too. Don't miss the Soul Patrol with me, Dave Keating, every Tuesday from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., always streaming on valleyfreeradio.org. Okay, we are back. And as I said, we are moving on. (laughs) 
And so we're going to start out with an update from Mars. This one comes from what may seem like a forgotten member of the team, the InSight Lander. The lander's seismograph has allowed the researchers to see large-scale features in Mars's interior, such as how big the core is and whether there are pockets of molten rock, but it isn't actually really equipped to provide fine details. The researchers wanted a better idea of the area below the lander, but Mars quakes aren't a good fit for that. Waves that arrive from far away are mostly influenced by the geology of the area of origin, while nearby Mars quakes are too energetic to discern fine details from local features. In order to probe the local landscape, NASA researchers had to find some quiet time where they could listen to the background seismic noise that the lander records. This is mostly generated on Mars by the wind interacting with local features. Unfortunately, the local feature most interacted with during high wind times was the lander itself, rather than the surrounding landscape. The researchers had to find a time, usually during early evening, when the winds actually tend to die down, um, which is interesting. Uh, they had to find weak wind. <laughs> and so it's this weaker wind that tends to actually interact with the local geology rather than the lander and give them an actual view of what's going on. And so analysis of these waves, along with an examination of exposed rocks in nearby craters. Um, let them see what was going on. And so they actually took that information and they loaded it into computer models and found the most common solutions to what might be featured there. And between those models and actually looking at nearby craters, they were able to determine that the most likely composition of the area Beneath the InSight lander includes a surface crust of Mars regolith, dust and rock fragments produced by impacts, and responsible for having uh, ended the mole's uh, ability to potentially do good science. Grr. <laughs> Sorry, I would just I just came across the story about that um, while I was looking at other things the other day and I was like, oh man, still so upsetting that they weren't able to make that work. But this is working. So that regolith is only around five feet deep according to the models, but the researchers caution that the data for the uppermost 65 feet is still fairly uncertain. But they think that around 10 feet below the surface, there seems to be a layer of volcanic rock from a major eruption sometimes in Mars's deep past. Between roughly 100 and 260 feet, there seems to be a layer where seismic signals move slowly, leading the researchers to surmise that this is a layer of sedimentary rock. Below that is more volcanic rock which was most likely laid down some 3 billion years ago during the Hesperian period of widespread volcanism on the planet. And so after that was laid down, it was covered by the sedimentary rock, 
and then the second volcanic layer was deposited during the Amazonian period. Mars has very cool uh, names for its geologic periods. Um, and so this, of course, was then covered by the regolith material, which is found all over the surface of the planet. And that is basically from impacts and from um, space dust and the normal sort of thing like you would find on, for instance, the moon as well. And so thinking of that, we are going to move on and talk about water. Water in the solar system. And so water obviously is a very important thing that we need. And it turns out there's more of it than we thought there was. And uh, basically about a decade ago, we learned that there's actually a decent amount of water on the surface of the moon. Obviously, this is weird <laughs> because the moon has no atmosphere and it's bombarded by enough solar radiation to boil any liquid water off. So it was a mystery as to how it was present there. One suggestion at the time was that the solar wind sends a steady stream of protons, which interact with lunar material to produce water. Now, a decade later, we're able to examine asteroid samples brought back from two different probes. And so researchers obtained samples from Japan's Hayabusa mission to asteroid 25143 Itakawa. They found that these samples had a thin, water-rich layer on them, consistent with the solar wind theory. This suggests that other solar system bodies are likely to be water-rich, and that this may have contributed to Earth's oceans. Now, Itakawa is what's referred to as a rubble pile asteroid. It's composed of small fragments from collisions among asteroids that have slowly formed a conglomerate due to gravity. And so an asteroid like this may have formed and reformed over and over again, even picked up pieces of other asteroids over time. And so basically that means that all of it has had time to be exposed to solar wind. A large international team looked at the fragments returned to Earth and subjected them to a battery of imaging techniques. They found that the outermost 40 to 180 nanometers of rock were transformed while in space by interactions with high-energy radiation. This same layer also contained elevated levels of water and hydroxyl ions. This finding corresponds to the idea that the water is created by an interaction between protons in the solar wind and silicate-rich materials in the asteroid itself. Because of the nature of the regolith of which the asteroid is composed, again, most of the small particles of dust and rock had been exposed at some point, and so that's how they all end up with a little bit, a little tiny bit of water. And so the researchers were able to calculate that among the amount, were able to calculate the amount of water in the particles of different size. They calculated that because of the high surface area of the component dust of the asteroid, it contains some 20 liters of water per cubic meter, which suggests that there's a lot of water in the solar system. And so you know, if we could figure out a way to 
uh, extract that water, that would be pretty useful. Um, cause of course water is very, very useful. And so this actually suggests that there, um, might also be direct impacts on the earth itself. Now there's always been a bit of mystery surrounding how water ended up on the planet. Most theories suggest that water arrived after the collision that created the moon. Over time, asteroids and comets fell that contained water. However, the hydrogen isotopes of the water in the ocean actually have a different ratio than that found in asteroids that have a similar composition to Earth. And so there's always been this mystery of the light water, basically, why it has lighter isotopes. And so this finding might tell us why it is somewhat lighter. The solar wind contains hydrogen isotopes that are even lighter than what we see in the ocean. If they are interacting with dust particles in space and those dust particles rain down on Earth, over time you'd see a shift from the heavier isotopic balance of the original water to a lighter one with the introduction of isotopes from the solar wind. And of course, this is an ongoing process. Around 30,000 tons of dust grains fall to Earth each year, and each probably has a tiny bit of light hydrogen water. And while that's not a whole lot of water falling at any one time, it does tend to build up over the billions of years that the Earth has been around. So yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, I'm really excited about the idea that they might have found out about how that water um, isotope mystery could be solved, because that's always been one of those big things that people have really um, been, you know, puzzling about, because if we got our water from those um, asteroids, why don't we have the same isotopic ratios because that, you know, they're, they're not changing because most of what's in, um, you know, especially the outer solar system doesn't change a lot. And so, um, it's always been kind of interesting to try and figure out how that early, um, water deposition happened. And so this is really cool. Um, I am pretty excited about it. Okay. So now we're going to talk about a bit of a controversial study. Um, and it's controversial because the, um, the researchers who have put it out there are making some pretty bold claims about it. And it's not necessarily, uh, supported by the facts that they have. Um, put out to make that sort of claim. Um, but of course, as we know, um, one thing that often happens is that, uh, you get science by press release. And so, um, it's just, it's a, it's, it's, it's a kind of a wild ride. Let's, let's get into it. And then we'll, <laughs> you'll kind of see what I'm talking about and where it might be a little bit weird that they seem so excited about it. Now they announced that they created a kind of living robot 
that can uh, self-replicate. They call it kinetic self-replication. And so again, lots of headlines thus are screaming that these are the first living robots that can reproduce. That was apparently uh, the headline on CNN. Um, but this isn't really true. Now there is neat science going on here. I don't want to discount that, but it's not as amazing as they'd like you to believe it is. It's not robots that can reproduce. Um, it's, it's just, it isn't. Um, and so the whole thing turns on the unique properties of embryonic cells from a frog's egg. And so these cells have some pretty unique tendencies. Um, they have a tendency to stick to each other. And if you leave a clump of them in a culture dish, they'll pull themselves into a ball. The other thing that they'll do is they'll actually self-organize so that the external cells have cilia, which will spin around in circles, pushing against the culture medium. And over time, those cilia will actually start to coordinate. And so eventually it will cause the cilia to end up spinning in unison. And this causes the ball to move. Now, these mobile balls of cells, or MBCs uh, for short, um, when left untouched, will trace out a circular path in the culture dish and will continue to move around for around two weeks before basically running out of energy. Now, this isn't actually new at all. This was described in a paper back in March. And it's, again, a really neat result, but it's not quite so amazing as all that. What is new is that the researchers found that if you placed a collection of disassociated cells in the dish with the MBCs, they will cause those cells to congregate in the middle and form another MBC. Now, the second MBC is smaller and won't self-organize on its own. It actually needs to be moved into a new dish with more cells so that it can incorporate those before it too becomes mobile. Not only is this slow and inefficient, but it's also not organic in the sense that it requires intervention from the researchers. The next step involves the researchers using an evolutionary algorithm with a physics simulator to find a better shape to make the process go for longer. So in that original uh, permutation, you could only get about two or three uh, generations. Now, part of the uh, weirdness of all this is that they called the program an AI, which it isn't. It's an evolutionary algorithm. An algorithm is not synonymous with an AI. They are two different things. Um, yeah, there's just a lot of weird things going on here. And so um, that process ran and they found that a half toroid or crescent shape worked best. But Again, this requires manual intervention. It required the researchers to squish the balls, excise a notch from them, and then unflatten them. Again, this is lots of manual intervention. Despite that, the researchers call it, quote, a form of perpetuation that's previously unseen in any organism. Of course, it's unseen in any organism because you did a whole bunch of interventions. 
<laughs> it's not actually a form of perpetuation because after the first one or two, you have to start doing things. And it's, it's just not something, um, that would necessarily develop naturally because <laughs> it's not natural. Um, <laughs> and so, um, again, they just, they were really interested in kind of the, um, esoteric versions of this, of this, uh, work. And so they started using their algorithm again, um, and started to, uh, they, they went off in a very weird direction. They started to try and program it so that there was a incomplete electronic circuit sitting in a cultural dish with a bunch of wires that could connect things into a useful circuit. Um, and so occasionally if you are doing this and there are MBCs in the medium, uh, occasionally they'll bump the wires into a functioning circuit. And, um, you know, if you have replicating MBCs, that works better, obviously, because you get more of them moving around. Um, but again, this is, this is, this is pie in the sky stuff. I, I've got to say it. Um, it's, it's just really interesting how, in love with their own work, these researchers are. I mean, you know, I absolutely think it's important to have a lot of pride in your work and to care about what you're doing. Um, but, you know, there's a whole reason for why we have things like peer review and why, um, you know, there, there should be a process because people can really get, get into the weeds. And I think this is definitely a place where they have gotten into the weeds. Um, because apparently they just, just think that this is the, you know, the next version of sliced bread. Uh, and so they said that they think that this could actually help with a lot of the world's troubles. Several global challenges are increasingly sub, sub, bleh, super linearly in spatial extent intensity and frequency, demanding technological solutions with corresponding rates of spread, adaptability, and efficacy. Kinematic self-replication may provide a means to deploy a small amount of biotechnology that rapidly grows in utility, but which is designed to be maximally controllable via AI-designed replicators. Again with that AI-designed. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, but it's just not, it's not as, as big as they think it is. I mean, the ability to use an algorithm to identify a way to take this odd property of frog cells and to create something that will, with intervention, do this thing is cool. Um, you know, I think that is definitely cool, but it's not self-replicating. It's not, um, without intervention. And it doesn't seem like there's any way that that could be done without intervention at the moment. And yeah, it's just not helping guys. 
like not helping at all. Um, when people are constantly being like, you know, science is not good and people, you know, don't trust in science to have someone put out a paper that's so overhyped and not just by the media, but by the actual researchers is frustrating at best. Um, but, you know, I think it is interesting. I did um, see an article recently about how, you know, COVID-19 has actually helped people feel a little bit better about science again, because, you know, everything we've said um, about it has been true, um, that, you know, science has been pretty on the um, COVID-19 um, virus and it's you know, we've been able to track it properly and we've gotten vaccines out really quickly and there's been a lot of good science around it, despite the fact that, yes, there are many people who think that everyone is lying to them about it and that, you know, the vaccine is actually what does damage rather than COVID, but we're not going to talk about that. Um, but yeah, I don't really have a good way to end tonight. It was a weird one and I apologize. <laughs> we went on some weird tangents tonight and um, I hope you didn't mind too much. Um, I will be back next week. Hopefully we won't have to talk about COVID. Hopefully Omicron will not have become a giant thing that we have to deal with. Um... I hope you have a good week. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.